0: Today's All Rise podcast is made possible in part by Joseph Krausky, attorney at law, based in Boston, Massachusetts. And here's a reminder to get in touch with Diane if you have a particular request for us to handle a case or talk about something. Or if you have a question, we're going to have a special podcast soon that will involve questions from the audience for Diane Godfrey. Here's what you do. Send those questions, comments to Diane at gmail.com. That's allrise.diane@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And we look forward to answering those questions. Welcome to the must-download podcast for true crime fans. This is All Rise with Diane Godfrey. I'm Jordan Rich, co-pilot on the podcast with my friend Diane. And today, an amazing conversation with one of the most respected and celebrated criminal defense attorneys, not just in Boston, but throughout the country. Diane and I are sitting down with Jay Carney to talk about the law and particularly some high profile cases, including that of James Whitey Bulger. So Diane, you're an old pal and colleague of Jay Carney's, I'm going to let you kick things off. Can't wait. Hi, Jay. Hi,
1: Diane. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you.
2: Great to see you. I haven't seen you in person since before the pandemic. Well, I'm so delighted you're here today and Jordan and I have a few questions.
0: Well, first off, you look a lot younger in person than you do on TV and much more handsome. Yeah. Okay, I'll continue talking. (laughs) That's what I thought would keep him here.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, every time you turn around, you see, you you know, you're always on TV. You know, you're channel surfing, and all of a sudden you're like, Jay, there he is. So um, needless to say, you are a eminent Boston attorney, criminal defense attorney. You and I have worked on many cases. That's right. But we haven't worked together on, I don't know what adjective to use, the whoppers that you've had. (laughs) And just to... Right off the bat, three come to mind: the infamous Whitey Bulger case. What was his name? Salvo? de Salvo? Salvi. Salvi.
0: Oh, the abortion murder case. Wasn't right. that
2: in the early nineties? Yes. Mm-hmm. That was in. Right. That was tried in Dedham, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. But thirdly, you represented that gentleman from Sudbury, Mass. And I, I'm going to massacre his name, so I'm going to let you say it. Sympathizer for the Taliban.
1: Oh yeah.
2: I know it's a crazy name. Tariq Mahana. Tariq Mahana. And did he go to trial? Yes. What's his status now?
1: He's about uh, seven years away from being released, and uh, he's being held in brutal conditions in a federal prison.
2: Um, will he be deported?
1: He's a United States citizen.
2: He is. Nice. And what exactly was he convicted of?
1: Providing material support to al-Qaeda.
2: Sudbury Mass, mm. sleepy little Sudbury, Yep. where nothing ever Happens, supposedly. Wow, that just makes it more profound.
1: I just saw a letter this week that he wrote to the judge about the conditions in which he is confined. And I'm going to see if I can do something to help him
2: with that. Is he like in solitary confinement or something?
0: Might as well be. Does that often happen, though, that you remain in touch with people, obviously people who are convicted, as an advocate for them? Does that happen often?
1: No, it doesn't. Uh, Even after the trial, I usually refer the case to someone else if there's going to be an appeal.
0: I see. Okay. Diane, you wanted to ask Mr. Carney about his background.
2: I did before we get too far into this, because the the showstopper I think is going to be the Whitey Bulger situation today. But I did want to ask you if you were a Boston kid growing up, and and did you go to law school here in Boston, and if so, where? And
1: uh, I was born in New Bedford, mm-hmm. and I grew up in New Bedford, then Pittsfield, then Worcester, then Framingham, wow, then Brookline, and then Dorchester. And uh, I lived in Dorchester for 15 years.
2: Which is a neighborhood of Boston for non-Bostonians. And you
0: jumped around from, from all parts of the state yeah. pretty much. Yep. You were down southeast and west and, oh, wow.
2: What's your favorite place?
0: Um, Boston.
2: Really?
1: Yeah, it really is.
2: Great. My, my bride and
1: I are planning to move into Boston next
0: year. Ah, Back in Boston. I live there. It's very, very much a great way to live at this point in my life. Wonderful. I'll I'll talk to you off the air about great ideas and suggestions for you.
2: You're not shoveling snow.
0: No, no more shoveling snow. That's one thing. By the way, it's my
1: bride of 39 years.
0: Congratulations. Congratulations.
2: How many children do you have? Two. Oh, how nice. Are they follow
0: follow in dad's footsteps at all?
1: I've got a little girl who's 34 who has an Internet business that is going through the roof. Great, And my son uh, graduated from Boston College Law School. Yeah. Uh, my alum, he's working with me and waiting for the bar results.
2: Great. He's going to be a great lawyer. Well, if it's it's in the DNA, so what can it's you say? It's in the genes, no question yeah. about it. What made you go into law, of all things?
1: Well, there were two things that really affected me when I was young. One was a uh, TV show called The Defenders, mm. and these were two— Uh, defense counsel, who, unlike on Perry Mason, or maybe like on Perry Mason, uh, they usually lost their cases, you know, but they still kept at it, and the stories were very interesting. And then I wrote, read a book called um, Gideon's Trumpet. Mm. That really affected me also, because it was the story of someone who was incarcerated, and he wrote with crayon on a piece of paper to the United States Supreme Court, saying, if I had had a lawyer, I wouldn't be in prison. And based on that
0: handwritten G- petition to the court, Gideon versus Rainwhite? Yes, famous Supreme Court case because of that. Um, it, it's so interesting that you talk about uh, defenders and shows like that that really uh, brought to life the heroic nature of many attorneys. But didn't you start out as on the other side as a prosecutor?
1: No. I first started as a public defender in okay. Boston. Okay. I had uh, initially worked as a law student at the Committee for Public Counsel Services, which provides the uh, public defender services in the state. I see. Back then, it was called the Massachusetts Defenders Committee, and I worked there as a law student. And I was walking down the hall one day, and Arnie Rosenfeld, who was the person who basically hired people, passed me. And he said, Connie, are you going to get around to applying for a job here? I said, yes. He said, okay, you're hired. Write a one-sentence letter (laughs) to Joan Pano so she can open a folder on you.
0: (laughs) Just like that? Just like that. Very Okay.
2: Well, I have to say, this might embarrass you, but you're, you're really a big deal in the legal arena in Boston. You are. But you know what I like about you? You're like the most humble person. You're the nicest person.
1: It's not not hard being humble. You're not a jerk. Yeah, well, (laughs) I tell people, honestly, uh, I'm a moderately competent lawyer who's been blessed with very interesting clients. And that describes my career.
2: I've been on on some interesting ones with you, although nothing can top what we're going to speak about now. And that is the infamous Whitey Bulger. If you can give the listeners a thumbnail sketch of just who he was—
1: Woody Bulger was a resident of South Boston, the leader of crime for 25 years in Boston. He was never prosecuted for anything, not even a a traffic ticket. Mm. And uh, it would have been um, a central part of my defense had I been able to present it to show why he was never indicted by anybody.
0: Uh, Did he reach out to you? How did that work? When he was arrested,
1: the Prosecutor said he should be able to hire his own defense lawyer, but they didn't know if he had any assets, and any that he did have, they seized. So he was found to be qualified for a court-appointed lawyer. It was a very interesting process. A, an individual was initially appointed to represent uh, Whitey, uh, but he could not take the case because of personal circumstances. Um, he was going to be named a judge huh. very shortly. And he was asked by the court to consult with people in Boston and ask them if they are able and willing to represent him. I told him I'd have to get back to him the next day because I wanted to ask my wife mm. and uh, mm. my two kids. My wife rolled her eyes, uh, which is her signal to me, okay, jeez, if you have to do it. Uh, my son said, Whatever. And my daughter said, Dad, you, we'll be able to buy a cape house if you take that case. <laughs> so I said, that's great. I'll call, it, I'll call my book, How I Bought a Cape House.
0: That's great. And, that's
1: great. Uh, but they said, no, nope, that's fine, Dad. And I said, it's going to change my life and yours. Sure. And they said, no, nope, no problem. And so the next day I called them and said, yes, I'm able and willing to take it. Well, a couple of weeks passed, and I didn't hear anything. And then one day— um, I had made an appointment with my daughter uh, to meet her at the Apple Store at um, 1 o'clock. And uh, I said, we'll pick out this new iPad that you want, and uh, then we'll have lunch. She said, grad, dad, that'll be terrific. So I'm at the Apple Store, and I get a cell phone call. It's a judge. Uh, Mr. Carney, can you be in my courtroom at 2 o'clock? I said— Yes. And the judge said, do not tell anybody um, what you're being called to court for. And I go, okay. Well, it's five of one. I call my daughter. I said, sweetheart, uh, I'm not able to stay, uh, but I've already paid for your iPad, and you just have to pick out the colors and the gizmos, but it'll be all set. What a good dad.
2: How can I get on that gravy train?
1: (laughs) My daughter said, "Um, dad, we were going to have lunch. I said, that's right. Yep. It'll be a bonding moment. I said, sweetheart, we will have a bonding moment, but not this <laughs> afternoon. And she said, yeah, sure, dad. Oh, what man. is it, a client? It's a, I bet it's about a client, right? Sweetheart, I've just got to go. Um, you can call mom. Uh, she'll be able to tell you what's going on. So I get to the courthouse. There's a line of microphones in front of it, and, sure. uh, but there are no reporters or anybody. And so I enter the to the uh, courthouse and I go up to the floor where this is going to take place
2: now this is federal court in Boston yep
1: in federal court and uh, there are two court officers outside the courtroom I'm supposed to go into and they go oh, sorry Jay we're Phil we, we can't allow anyone else in but if you want to go to a, the courtroom next door you can watch the proceedings and I was thinking sheesh this is probably the biggest case in my life and I'm not going to be able to be there and then You know, they started laughing and said, Jay, we saved you your favorite spot in the back of the courtroom at the end of the row. I said, oh, great, thanks. So I walk in and I sit down. Uh, The judge comes out and uh, the, uh, she, um, or before she comes out, I'm looking around the courtroom and there must be 15 very prominent criminal defense lawyers in there, as well as prosecutors, media people. And I said, oh, wow, she probably told me to show up and she's going to announce which of us is going to be selected. Right. Oh, my God, Uh, this is going to be this is going to be uh, a quick visit. And uh, she came out and my memory is she kind of played it a little bit. She said, "Uh, I found that Mr. Bulger is indeed indigent. I'm going to appoint him a lawyer. I'm going to appoint a lawyer who's had a lot of experience in this court and a lot of high profile cases and he's particularly qualified for this and so I am going to appoint a lawyer who is available (laughs) uh, to be accept appointments for these types of cases.
0: All we know so far is it's a he. That's all we know. Right. Maybe. Right. Okay.
1: And,
2: uh,
1: And then she calls my name. I walk up I introduced myself to Mr. Bulger. His two brothers were there. I'd known his two brothers for 30 years.
0: Billy being one of them. Yes, and... uh, Former state senate president.
1: Yep, and UMass president, and and really an absolutely terrific guy. Mm -hmm. I I love him. Oh, he's so fantastic. And uh, I also saw Jack, um, another brother, um, who I had known when he was the clerk of the juvenile court ah. in Boston, and uh, but I looked down and I shook hands with Whitey. And it, the thing that sprang into my mind
2: right.
1: is, without my glasses, we really looked
0: pretty similar. Oh my similar. God! <laughs> Jay just took off his glasses, and I can't believe it. You do look a lot like him. It
2: never him. occurred to me until yeah. he's much older <laughs> than you, though. How yes. old was he at the time?
0: 80-something? Uh, no, he was, uh, when you met I him. believe, in his 70s. Oh, my goodness. That's scary. Sorry, yeah. no no offense. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm 69, so okay. doesn't— Okay. So what was, that was a moment you had.
1: And the moment I had is I looked at him and I said, oh, my God, I hope he doesn't uh, take me prisoner sometime when I'm visiting him, make me trade clothes with him, and then— had to put on my glasses and walk out of here.
0: I can tell you love television and movies because you, you, you're thinking about this like it's a movie plot. Right. And, and the it, next
1: thing I heard was, um, Mr. Carney, oh, yes, Your Honor, will yes. you accept the appointment? Yes, I will. Well, I so that's how I met him. That and is an amazing that? story. And then— um,
2: What was your first spin on it like when you first spoke to him? What did you think he was like? Like, was he personable? Was he—
1: Well, con- I didn't really have a chance to speak to him in the courthouse. right. Um, and when I came out of the courthouse, there was the media mm. there. And, um, you know, I had thought about what I wanted to see in the newspaper the next day. And um, I gave that answer to any question. and um, But I basically said I intend to investigate the facts of this case, find out where the truth lies, and present it to the jury.
0: Hmm. That's a, an effective answer, I think. Yeah. Did they print what you hope they would? Because we all know how the media can be. Well,
1: um, over the years, I've kind of learned how to deal with the media. Um, in fact, there was a conference, a national conference of journalists in Boston, and I was asked to speak. And I said, what do you want me to talk about? They said, anything. So I told them, Connie's 10 Rules for Dealing with the Media. And uh, it really... Was, I mean, people were laughing, clapping. A couple of people stood up and said, he's done that to me. <laughs> but let's say I get a call from someone uh, on a radio program, wants to speak to me. What I'll say is, um, oh, uh, what's your deadline? Oh, well, uh, between now and 3 o'clock. Okay, can I call you back? I just need to finish with something. So then I type out the two sentences that I want to have on the radio program or the two sentences I want to see in the newspaper. And uh, I write them out, grammatically correct. And uh, so I'll say to the reporter, let's do this. Why don't I give you two things on the record? Then we'll go off the record, and I'll tell you anything you want to know. And then if you want me to say it on the record, we can do that after I you know at the at the appropriate time that's that's heaven for a journalist they're going to get something on the record they're right. going to question me off the record and then I'm going to go back on the record great so what I, my on the record statements are i'm uh, honored to be appointed to a case of this seriousness and i intend to handle it the way i handle all of my cases i intend to uh, Determine where the truth lies uh, pre- and do my best to present it to a jury. Okay, you got those two? Yeah. All right, let's go off the record. What do you want to do? And I can trash the government's case and say, this is you know, baloney. It's based on a lot of people who have a great incentive to testify the way the government wants. And, mm. and uh, you know, I'll talk to them for about 10 more minutes. And then I'll say, oh, what's that? Excuse me a moment. Oh. Uh, Jordan, I've got to uh, take this call. It's a client who's in prison in El Reno, Oklahoma. He can only call me once a month for about 30 <laughs> minutes. So, Oops. I've got to take that.
0: I guess you do. <laughs> so,
1: you know, why don't I call you back when that's done? <laughs> Great, Love it. excellent. Love it. And son of a gun, I forget to uh, call him back. I'm unavailable. So, the re- the reason I do this is because the next day in the Boston Globe, those two sentences will appear. And then when the next person calls me from the Herald, those two exact sentences will appear.
0: So there's <laughs> consistency in the messaging and it is about messaging that, that's important in these cases. Exactly right. Sure. And,
1: and I think as a lawyer, you've got to control the media. Mm-hmm. You've got to determine what will help your client if you're in the, the uh, paper. Um, and that's what mm-hmm. I try to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Attorney Joseph Krauski is based in the Boston, Massachusetts area and serves all of New England. Joe has 43 years of experience handling major personal injury and criminal cases with hands-on attention given to every client. He also specializes in handling cases of OUI, which is operating under the influence, and has experience with many serious and important superior and district court cases. To contact attorney Joe Krauski, call 508 five eight seven three seven oh one. Again that's five oh eight five eight seven three seven oh one. Email him at com. That's K-R-O-W-S-K-I-L-A-W dot com. It's legal help when you need it. law dot com
2: Can you just tell us? Well, two things I want. First of all, if you can tell us what he was charged with. But second of all, I Googled him naturally. Everybody Googles everybody these days. And it said he was worth $25 million. And when he was found in Santa Monica, California, with his girlfriend in an apartment, they said he had been li- um, living rather simply. And all I said to myself when I saw that figure of $25 million, I said, wow, crime must pay. But... They said they found 800000 in the wall of his apartment. I don't know if that's true or not. It's but, true. But secondly, what good was it all if he just lived <laughs> like he lived for so many years on the limb? Like he didn't, they say he just watched TV and went for, a, I mean, I don't. Well, case. he had his
0: freedom, though. That's one thing for that's sure. That's right.
1: Yeah. Um, he, he really lived a simple life. Uh, the whole time he um, was alive, he lived in uh, South Boston. And um, he really was a fixture of that Mm -hmm. neighborhood. And uh, I remember talking to him once and said, did you really try to uh, get good stories about you, good press in the newspaper, such as giving out turkeys at Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. to uh, people who Mm -hmm. couldn't afford them or paying anonymously for a funeral for someone where the family couldn't afford it? I said, were you doing that for publicity so you could increase your reputation in the community or in the media?" And he said, yeah, uh, I did that stuff because it was the right thing to do for my neighbors. And uh, I loved doing it. Did it benefit me? Sure. I'll tell you a story. He said one day he was walking down the street and an elderly woman in her 80s was in the front of her triple-decker and she said, good morning, James. He said, Good morning, Mary Margaret. How are you doing? Fine. How's your sister? Is she feeling better? Yes, she is. Thank you for asking. Oh, James, can you look over your shoulder at the van parked up the street? He turned and said, Yeah. She said, Well, as you know, I live on the second floor, and I spend most of my day looking out the windows, and for the last two weeks, I've seen that van drive up at 7 a.m. And then a car uh, drives up and two men get out um, who uh, have dark suits, shiny shoes, and skinny ties. And they get in the van. And then at uh, 2 o'clock, the car drives back. These two men get out of the van. And then two other men, dressed in the same way, (laughs) get in the van. And then she leans over and tells him, I don't think they're really from Verizon. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, thank you very much. Oh, I'm very sure
2: nice. They were feds. It. And
1: that happened every day to him.
2: Wow.
0: I've got to ask you about your reaction when he was killed in prison. And, and if there was any, I don't remember, follow up on that, the resolution to that, if there was someone actually that finally was charged with that. And what it sounded almost too pat to, to be real, but it did happen. What do you know about that?
1: In my opinion, um, the Federal Bureau of Prisons uh, did that so that he would be killed. Hmm. Um, Whitey was um, someone well-known in the prison system. And in fact, one of the first things he did, he was in the 1950s, uh, he was sent in a federal prison for uh, bank robberies. He was sent to a prison in... uh, uh, Atlanta, mm. and um, one day um, he was found with hacksaw blades. Now this is how you know old this story is. He was in a prison where if you sawed off the, hack, the bars on your window, you just fell to the ground and could run away. Wow! And so he was found with that, and the and the warden came up and said, "All right, uh, Bulger, tell me who gave you those hacksaw blades." He said, I'm not telling you nothing. Yeah, you'll tell me something, What? just what I want to know. Who brought in those blades? Not telling you nothing. All right, put them in solitary. Then a week later, he came back. He said, you're going to tell me who they are? No. Um, take all his clothes off. Take his personal effects. And mm-hmm. he sat there for another week. Warden came down and said, um, you're going to tell me who that guard is who brought those hacksaw blades in? He said, I'm not telling you nothing and he says, oh yeah, I'm gonna ship you out to Alcatraz. And Whitey looked at him and
0: put his arms up and said, I'm all packed. And he did, of course, wind up in Alcatraz. He did. He did, but right. But the
1: important thing was he would never rat a correctional officer. Huh. And he ended up in, Wal- in um, Alcatraz as a result. And so the, all of the correctional officers knew Whitey, Whitey was a good guy. Interesting. Wow. And all the guards would know Whitey would never tell up about anything. Down,
0: down through the, the decades. That's oh, right. Wow.
2: I just wanted to say one thing. When you were saying James, you were referring to James Whitey Bulger, yes. people that don't know. And also, if we can just tell listeners that aren't from Boston, at the time, South Boston was a closely knit Irish Catholic working class th- community. Exactly right. What do they call it? Proletariat? Just like mm. working class yeah. and yeah. Um, he was, from what I understand, loved by the neighbors, you know, the whole neighborhood. But supposedly he did a lot of really bad things. To, he murdered supposedly a lot of people. How many people do they say that he murdered?
1: He was charged with 19 murders.
0: Mm.
2: That's mind-boggling.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, when you take a case like that, you mention your family, and I, I, I have a wife— two, and I, uh, the boss in the family is usually the wife, but there, there is sort of a personal burden that you're bringing on to you and the people around you, the, your colleagues and all that. What kind of stuff happens when you're representing a Salvi or a, a Bulger? I mean, are you getting hate mail, the kind of hate mail that people in the media get?
1: I get hate mail. I get uh, messages right. left on my voicemail.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I get all of it in these, in these types of cases. There's been only one case that has really impacted uh, me on a personal level, and that was the John Salvi case. Um, people were were divided. Uh, there were people who were uh, so-called pro-life, uh, who felt that he had done the right thing and uh, should be applauded for standing up in court and just admitting he did it and
0: be proud of it. We should mention what he did. Yes. He was yeah. charged with and, a, and convicted, I believe, of uh, murdering two people, shooting two people at the clinic. And then he left the state, right. and they they caught him at some point, right? Yep. Yeah. And, uh, he
2: shot up an abortion clinic in Brookline, wasn't it, on yes. Beacon Street? Two of them. Two of them.
0: Right. Okay, yep. so continue.
1: And um, I remember th- that case. I was appointed to it, and— uh, uh, I thought I'd go down to Virginia to meet my client because he had a court-appointed lawyer down there um, who was giving press releases and talking to the media about what his client had told him. And I said, this has got to stop. So I went down there. Um, one thing that was interesting is when I went to the jail, was in a high rise, there were people outside with bullhorns going, John Salvey, you're our hero. You did the right thing. at that point, I realized this is going to be an interesting case <laughs> and uh, but in the context of representing John, the emotions ran so hot that um, I got a call one day from uh, my old boss, uh, Tom Riley. He said that uh, Jay, uh, we've put police protection on your street. It's in an unmarked car because we've been, uh, privy to credible threats that someone might want to harm you, and um, uh, that got my attention certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing ever came of it, and um, the the threat turned out to be um, not kept not something that was going to be carried through. And That's I didn't still, even tell my family.
0: Uh, that was decades. my next question: if if you kept it to yourself, I did. Yeah, probably for decades. Probably a very astute thing to do in retrospect. right? right. Why Did he kill with?
2: himself in prison or something? That's a
1: whole other story. <laughs> oh. I mean, um, it was um, interesting in that about oh, seven or eight months after he had been convicted and he was in Walpole prison, um, I was no longer representing him. He had two other lawyers. And uh, one morning at about 6.15 a.m., the phone rang. It was the day after Thanksgiving. And I sat up in bed and I looked at my wife and said, John Salvi is dead. And she said, what? Why are you saying that? I said, I have no idea. I picked up mm-hmm. a phone. It was uh, WBZ Radio saying, Jay, um, you, uh, are you aware that John Salvi killed himself last night? And I said, oh, my God. Yeah, do you have any comment? I said, not right now. And I hung up the phone and I said, sweetie, it was John Salvey who died. Hmm. Just an interesting experience.
0: That is an interesting paranormal uh, yeah. metaphysical experience. Uh, was there any question about the death? Was it investigated and confirmed by all accounts that it was suicide? Or No. That's it it was. was
1: impossible for him to commit suicide.
0: That's what I thought you'd say. His mental illness had
1: never been treated, even when I represented him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, the um, he was assigned to a tier at Walpole State Prison. This was the tier where the most violent people were housed. And these were people who would have been so disgusted with serving on a tier with John Salvi, And he was getting more mentally ill as the day would go by. Mm. Walpole was... Uh, this tear was a freezing unit because there were holes in the windows that no one ever fixed because the inmates had thrown something through them and said, fine, okay, you want to live in the cold? You will. And uh, he was sleeping on the floor on some newspaper in his skivvies. His uncle was a uh, correctional officer in New Hampshire, came to Massachusetts and said to his colleagues, can you just give him a towel? Or, I mean, a blanket. They said, only if he'll ask for it. He's not going to ask for anything. They said, sorry, that's the rule. And um, the day he was found, I was informed that he killed himself by tying his shoelaces to the bottom rail of the bed, shoelaces around his wrists at the top of the bed. A sock was shoved down his mouth. And um, that's how he somehow killed himself.
2: That doesn't sound like he killed himself to me. I don't know. It, it,
0: it's it's it's. I hate to bring up another celebrated case, but shades of Jeffrey Epstein, I yeah. think, is what we're saying. This is so interesting to get your perspective on the individuals involved. But can you talk a little bit about the code that is first and foremost your ethical moral code? Your oath is to defend people who, uh, according to our system, deserve defense, even those who are dubbed heinous and ugly and vicious deserve a defense. How do you walk through a a celebrated case like the Salvi case knowing that the evidence is so clear that he pulled the trigger? What's your philosophy?
1: Well, um, I'm like 90% of people who practice criminal law for the defendant. I believe, as they believe, that we have an obligation— to have people who are charged with serious crimes be entitled to the best representation they can. Um, They used to pay a very low hourly rate, but still uh, the finest lawyers in Massachusetts accepted them uh, for that rate. And other lawyers did the same thing for even less money in less publicized cases. And we believe that every defendant is entitled to a defense. And that's what our system is built on. So for me, I really don't have any problem representing people who are called heinous criminals.
2: It goes back as far as John Adams.
1: Yes, it does. Right? That's a fantastic observation, Someone
2: had to do it.
1: Yep. Uh, John Adams, a noted person in colonial America, um, volunteered to represent the British soldiers who had shot people— uh, in front of the old State house
0: The Boston the Massacre. the Boston Massacre. Right, right,
1: And he said, I will represent them all.
0: Right. And yeah. people he got couldn't them understand off, it. didn't he? What's that?
2: He got most of them off, didn't yes, he? Yes, he did.
0: Yes. Yeah. And it's an Atticus Finch uh, uh, style of thinking, and and that's a fictional character, but um, there is a lot of honor in just playing it out so that the system remains intact. I think that's what you're saying. And, yes. And you take your oath. Uh, and, I, and I don't even... Um,
1: limit it to being the person's lawyer. Um, Throughout my career, I've had situations where I go to see someone uh, in the jail and I give him an update about his case and then he says, well, okay, thanks very much for coming out here, Jay. And he'll stand up or she'll stand up. And I'll say, what, you got a bus to reach? Um, (laughs) You know, you got somewhere to go? Uh, No, I just thought we were done. We're not done. (laughs) Have a seat. You told me the last time your brother was injured in a hockey game. How's he feeling? He's feeling great. He's uh, feeling more life in his legs. And, oh, it's so nice of you to ask, oh, wow, that's fantastic that he's feeling so much better. And I'll say, hey, I wanted to ask you, um, what's your favorite kind of food? You got a restaurant you can recommend to me in Boston? And maybe this kid who lives in a very, very poor neighborhood says, well, we like Auntie Jane's chicken. I'll say, hey, that's fantastic. I'll, I'll try it. And I, it's part of building my bond with clients, that I don't treat them just as the defendant, but as a real person.
2: Right. And
1: um, I've so enjoyed those, com-
0: those conversations. I've got a question for Diane. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be doing your job as the court reporter when— this man is doing what he does so ably and so famously. What's his style from your vantage point?
2: Well, first of all, when Jay comes in, it's you know it's going to be a good trial because he's so organized and he articulates beautifully. He doesn't speak too fast or too slow. He's He's... He's got it going on. So, and you know what? He's nice. He's friends with the court officers, you know, professionally, and Mm -hmm. and me and everyone. And you know he's not going to be a jerk, because I have to tell you (laughs) something, in case you don't know this, Jay, but in a courtroom, if a lawyer comes in with an attitude and isn't nice to one of the staff, it goes like wildfire. The judge finds out about it immediately. Someone tells the judge, and it goes through the courthouse, and they get a reputation. So they're not going to really be treated nice when they come in. Like, they'll do their job. Everyone, the staff will do their job, but there's no, you know, and they don't respect them behind their Mm. back. So, Mm. And it's a hard job as long as you've been doing it. Are you kidding me? You get one bite at the apple. It's like being on Broadway unscripted. Right. And I can't even imagine the enormous, like, pressure on your shoulders because you probably have family members in the back. And I mean, this is a big deal. This is someone's liberty. So I can't imagine that pressure.
1: Well, I'll tell you um, uh, what I've done throughout my entire career. Um, Every single day I've gone to court, I've learned one person's name that I didn't know before. Mm -hmm. And so I'll walk into a courtroom and uh, maybe it's the first time I've been in the court. I'll walk up to the court officer who's sitting there reading the Boston Herald and I'll say, uh, hi, um, I'm Jay Kearney. And, you know, for my early career, people would say, so what? (laughs) I go, oh, okay. just wanted to introduce myself. Um, And then uh, I say, could I have your name? Yeah, I'm Officer Brown. All right, Officer Brown, thank you very much. And uh, the next time I'm, I'm in that courtroom, I'll go up to maybe the clerk or maybe the court reporter or maybe the probation officer, and um, I'll introduce myself and um, get to know them a little each time. And uh, I've done that throughout my entire career. I've got uh, four lawyers in my office, and when they go to court, first court que- the two questions I always ask. First one is, what happened? And the second one is— who did you get to meet today? Because I've been so blessed in my career. And when I walk into a courtroom, people like Diane are saying, oh, Jay, so good to see you. I say, yeah. Diane.
2: It's, I mean, it's fun. Know, and, we catch and up. And it's great.
1: And yeah. you know, some lawyers treat the court as you know, a plantation. And everybody in the room is a slave. Yeah. Mm. And they just you know, will walk up to the clerk and say, please give me the file. Well, no, just... Give me the file, please. Or I can't say something without saying please.
0: Uh, yeah, that's you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can tell give just getting to know you in this interview. Yeah. Know. Give me the file. Well, it's it's so true. Uh, the way you treat others uh, is the way you want to be treated. And and if more people had that attitude, even in courtrooms across the country, we might have more success in moving things along. Diane?
2: You know what I've noticed? Now, I sat in courthouses through the, you know, across the state for Upwards of 30 years. And I've found on the civil and criminal side, the bigger deal the lawyer is, the more down to earth and nice they are. The arrogant ones, I don't know what they're trying to prove, but right. like Jay, he's just like a regular guy, just, you know, just a great guy. Well, I have
0: a question about style. And um, I admit I've not seen you in a courtroom because I don't hang around in courtrooms. She does. <laughs> but when you're doing uh, something as important as a closing argument, I've heard some lawyers in, in interviews say you know, they've, they've rehearsed and they've, they've memorized everything. I mean, it's a style thing, I know. You've got the knowledge, you've got the experience, but do you, how do you approach a closing argument generally? Well, I'll give
1: you an example by the uh, most recent trial I had, which was two weeks ago, a jury trial. Uh, I represented a client who was accused of sexually assaulting uh, four women. I mean, four, a woman in his office Four times. OK. And, uh, you know, the government's case went in pretty well. In my closing argument, um, I preliminarily thank the jurors for their service. I tell them, you know, you've given up the week of your life and, uh, you know, you know how you could get out of this pretty easily by seeing other people come up and say things. Uh, but you've sat as jurors and on my client and my behalf. Thank you so much for your service. That seems to break the ice. And then I'll say, I'm going to suggest some things that may guide you in your deliberations. And then I'll talk, I'll walk through the evidence and say, does that raise a reasonable doubt? Mm-hmm. Uh, does that raise a reasonable doubt? And then at the end of my closing, I've prepared a chart. And the chart has is entitled corroboration. And it has 10 things listed on it. For example, an eyewitness, or an ear witness, or prompt, prompt uh, telling of the event to the police. Um, and I just go through these 10 things. And on the chart, there's a box to be checked after each one. One says yes, the other says no. And I said, uh, what would corroborate this case? what would the district attorney have highlighted to you if this were present? Number one, an eyewitness, whoever saw this going on? No. Check off the no box. Was this a uh, facility that had surveillance cameras inside so you could see him walking up to this woman and doing something? Mm-hmm. No. And I go down the whole list, and it, there were all all the boxes are checked no. And I say... You know, what would the prosecutor say if all these boxes were checked? Yes. She would say that's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And you know what? She'd be right. But what does it tell you that all of these boxes are checked? No. Any one of which can constitute a reasonable doubt which is, about the government's case.
0: Which is the argument you need to make because right. that's what's protected in the Constitution.
1: Yeah. And um, – and I like to get close to the jurors. Mm. I like to be speaking to them one-on-one. Some lawyers act like they're in the Roman Coliseum, <laughs> speaking to the multitudes and just, you know, looking around and making comments. And, but I prefer to make eye contact. Yeah. And what I do is I'll focus on a juror for one individual point I'm making. There were no ear witnesses who heard any of this being said in the interaction between her and uh, my client. And uh, I'll look at one person and just make that point to him or her. And what I'm trying to do is plant the seed in that person's mind so that when they're discussing the case, that person will say, you know, uh, Attorney County said that uh, there was no ear witness to what happened oh, geez, the, the victim said she was yelling at him and saying, get away from me, you you beast. And this is such a small office. Mm. How did other people not hear it?
0: That's fascinating. Uh, an inside look at uh, the style and then the practice. Very interesting. Thank you for answering that. Yeah.
2: I have a question. Yep. Do you have any interest in ever becoming a judge?
0: It's funny. Um,
2: You'd look good in black.
1: Yeah. I, I, <laughs> it's your color. I, I, I love black, yeah. Um, there's a... Uh, photo of me in my office that was photo of me and a client uh on the cover of the boston globe magazine you know it's concerning juvenile justice because i represented someone who killed two children and they, they were the youngest victims of gang violence in boston
2: mm-hmm. how old were they
1: uh one of them was i believe i be- believe they were both under the age of 10 mm-hmm. they were playing on a stoop and uh there's a picture of me and my client on the cover of the Boston Globe magazine, and I would tell people um, it caught my best side. Hmm. So when people see it, they see I'm walking down a corridor with my hand on my client, my juvenile client's shoulder, and I'm walking away from the camera. So that was my best side.
0: That was your <laughs> – I still d- think you'd look good in a robe. Yeah, That's do fine. You, do you really
1: think well, you'd um, Specifically, um, the persons who make the uh, decisions—the decisions—are really the governor's chief counsel. Right. And uh, I got a call from uh, Governor Romney's chief counsel, saying, "Jay, how would you like to be the uh, the governor's first appointment to the Superior Court?"
0: Mm.
1: Now, his saying that to me meant, you know, the skids were greased or whatever. And uh, I said, Dan, I'll have to call you back tomorrow. Called him back the next day, and I said, uh, Dan, I've thought a lot about it, but I'd rather be the person standing next to the person that they want to bury under the courthouse instead of being the person who's there holding the shovel.
0: Profound, very profound. Wow. Did you uh, check in with your wife as well, or did you— Keep that one to yourself too.
1: I kept it to myself. Okay. I would have certainly discussed it with her if mm-hmm. I was going to say, "Sure, I'll do that." But um, hey, it was just. Um,
0: well, you're doing I you're doing what you've always wanted to do, and be you're in that place that you've always wanted to be. Absolutely right. Yeah, pretty obvious.
2: Can I circle back? Because I know we have a few minutes left, but um, can we circle back to? Whitey Bulger. Uh, I don't think we said that at the time he was in the Winter Hill Gang in Somerville, which is a a city right outside of Boston. I'm sure it's disbanded by now. Absolutely. But um, he was in the Winter Hill Gang and he had a girlfriend of many years. And the thing that I don't get is supposedly he was on the run and they were looking for him for years but he was in plain sight living in Santa Monica, California with his girlfriend, Catherine, how do you say it? Great. And she went to prison too, yes. but she's out now. Yes. How many years did she do and for what? Eight years. For harboring a fugitive, or what was it called?
1: For being in love with, with white. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, let me tell you a couple of stories about that. Um, one story is um, how Jim felt to her, about her. Um, Jim was someone who was very well read. Um, He um, particularly liked uh, biographies and war war novels. He um, uh, could be an Irish raconteur and tell a very funny story, although it usually ended with a bang. Mm. Um, And uh, he could be frightening, as he was with me on one occasion, not toward me, but toward someone else, and um, but he could also be caring. And what I did is, you know, I probably spent 300 hours with him, and uh, you know, he'd he I'd tell him about new things that have come up in the case, and I'd like to get his perspective on it, and uh, who's this new witness, and um, the um, uh, individual. Um, Whitey would say, um, you know, that's treating my girlfriend so bad. She was the one person who kept me from committing crimes for 16 years because I did not want to do anything to jeopardize her. And and he'd rail against that. And one day I called up the uh, uh, defense counsel for the wife, I mean the girlfriend, Kevin Reddington, who's like my closest friend as a lawyer and an unbelievable criminal defense lawyer. Mm. Um, he's a, an amazing, amazing person. And uh, I, I said, do you mind if I go see your client? He said, no, absolutely. I haven't been able to get over to her for three weeks. Tell her I still love her. Okay, sure. And, um, but uh, after he said that, I was we- meeting with my client. And I told him at the end of the you know three-hour meeting, I took my legal pad and I turned over the top page. And I said, look, Jimmy. No one called him Whitey to his face. At least no one who has
0: lived to tell about <laughs> no it. No one wanted his teeth. Why? Right. Um, and, uh, he didn't like the nickname.
1: Oh. Yeah. And um, I turned the page over on the pad and I said, Jim, why don't you write a letter to Catherine as if she's going to actually read it? He says, what are you talking about? Uh, she's in a prison out of state. There's no way I can write anything that she'll ever see. And, you know, I know that. This is really hurting me. And I said, would, Look, would you please just write a letter to her? Um, I'm asking you as a favor. He said, Oh, okay, Jay. What is that? A cathartic experience? And I said, God damn it, Jimmy. You ask me to do a lot of things. I'm just asking you to do one thing. He says, Okay. So he writes a one page letter to her. Um, I glance at it. There's no reference to hacksaw blades. Yes. Uh, the word love is in there a couple of times and uh, then i went to see katherine met with her for about 15 minutes and i said oh katherine um, i've got uh, something i'd like to show you uh, i'm going to be looking at this document um, while um, you're looking at it and so i'm going to swivel my seat and i put it down in front of her and i took the top page and i heard her start sobbing because she instantly recognized jimmy's handwriting And she said, can I keep this? I said, no, I'm sorry. And then um, I said, I turned it over one more page, and I said, Catherine, why don't you write Jim a letter? Imagining that he will someday read it. Interesting. And she said, okay. And so she wrote a one-page letter to him.
0: So you were the the go-between. Right,
1: and then I brought it back the next time I was with Jimmy.
2: They're called kites, remember, from our other podcast? Yes. Correspondents are called kites in prison.
1: And so um, I was with Jim, you know, at the end of three hours. He was ranting about something, and I said, Hey, Jim, i got something for you to read. While you're reading it, I'm going to read this other document in case I need to speak to you about it. And I swiveled my chair around, which was very unusual. And I lifted up the paper, and I heard Jim sobbing. Mm. And... uh You know, he read the letter. I waited until he composed himself. And I said, okay, Jim, you know the drill. And I turned that page over. Please write a letter to Catherine, imagining she's going to read it.
0: How many times uh, do you recall that that happened?
1: Probably eight.
0: Wow, interesting.
1: And I told uh, Catherine, whenever she wants it, this correspondence back and forth. I'll give it to her.
2: So they never saw each other again, ever. Uh But, you know, Kevin, it's interesting when you mention Kevin Reddington. I think it was on Facebook, of all things, because I'm on his page, he's on mine. We're friends on Facebook. You know what I thought was so interesting? And you can speak to this. He said, at the end of every criminal trial, as a criminal defense lawyer, a piece of him is left in the courtroom forever.
1: Absolutely.
2: I thought that was such an interesting statement.
1: It really was. For years— in fact, for decades, uh, when I'd be involved in a major case, primarily a homicide, no matter what the jury's verdict was, I'd go to Brighton. I'd go to a kind of a low-life bar. <laughs> I'd, I'd sit at the end of the bar, and I'd drink whiskey.
0: Now, and, that's right out of a movie.
1: Yeah. And, um <laughs> Uh,
0: It's like
2: Billy Bob on, like, that Amazon Prime thing, Goliath. But But you're not washed up like he was Um, on the the, the character. Yeah,
1: whether I won
2: or I lost,
1: I I went and sat there and just—
2: Decompressed?
1: Decompressed, but also thought of the awesome responsibility I had in representing someone. I
0: I just have one more question from me, and then I'll let Diane take it. We're we're coming to time here, but— when, in a case like Bulger, which is so celebrated, I mean, the whole world knew him. He was the number one FBI most wanted dude for a long time. Uh, is your intent, knowing that there's so much story and evidence that's going to be presented, is your intent to simply spare him from a harsher sentence from the death penalty, or is it indeed in to get him off?
1: Uh. He was not eligible for the death penalty because the murders he was alleged to commit occurred while the death penalty had been found um, unconstitutional. Okay. So he wasn't facing the death penalty. And he and I both knew what the result would be, mm-hmm. that he would be convicted. But what was important to Jim was to present why he says he had um, immunity. Um, what happened one day is uh, he was walking in South Boston. And uh, a Catholic priest was walking in the other direction and said, good morning, James, how are you? Good, Father. He said, James, I wondered if you could speak to someone. Um, He's looking for a little help and uh, uh, you could perhaps give him some advice. He said, what's his name, Father? Uh, his name is O'Sullivan. Really, what, what's his first name? Jeremiah. But mm-hmm. uh, Jim was totally, Uh, dedicated to doing anything to help an Irish person. And um, he said, "Okay, wait a minute, Jeremiah O'Sullivan, what's he do? He works for the federal government. He's not a prosecutor, is he? Yes, he is. All right, Father, we didn't have this conversation. Do not ever bring it up again with me or anybody else. And uh, good day. And Jeremiah O'Sullivan was the head of the Organized Crime Strike Force. Um, So Jim put him on the clock which is an expression that you use in mob life if you want to watch the person so carefully that you learn all of his habits, everything. For example, Jim had done that um, uh, with—who's the Herald columnist? Howie Carr.
0: Howie Carr, yeah. And Howie Carr claims that there was a bomb under his car at one point. Uh, That was fiction. Okay.
1: But but what later came out was Jim and Kevin Weeks had put— Howie Carr on the clock, because he was going to kill Carr because of everything he published. Mm -hmm. And um, they were across the street from um, Howie's home, and they had a long-range rifle, and they would have been able to kill him. He walked out of the house. He was holding the hand of one of his children, obviously planning to take the person to school. And Kevin said, should I fire? Should I fire? No, we're not killing him in front of his child. Mm. And so they went away. Um, He was really a person who um, was kind of amazing. And uh, I'll never forget him.
0: So uh, just one more thing. You you talked about the immunity issue. Um, Was it the FBI that basically granted him that special privilege of getting a pass for information?
1: absolutely, Absolutely not. They did not give him that. He paid for it. It was brought out during the trial that around Christmas, uh, Whitey would say, ah, Christmas, it's for kids and cops. (laughs) And he'd put money in envelopes. This is what Kevin Weeks testified at the trial. And he said um, he would give money from $1,000 to $100,000 every Christmas. The person who got $1,000, the Boston cop in the neighborhood who wouldn't ticket his car when he stopped, double parked for a while, he got $1,000. People on his payroll included 30 FBI agents, including the number two person in the Boston office. And he would get them on his side. He'd find a way. And what they would do is, in return, they would provide him information. The record is legion with instances where the FBI um, uh, opened a surveillance to try to see what he was doing. From then on, he never went there again. Or, my favorite is, um, the FBI got assistance from the CIA to put the most sophisticated hearing listening device in his car. There were four people in the war- world who knew that, 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 that it was there. And um, uh, one day, Whitey walked out, got in the car with Stevie Fleming, and you heard Steve, uh, Whitey say, boy, Those FBI agents, they sure are cool, aren't they? Yeah. And, you know, um, they've got the most sophisticated things that they can use to kind of like eavesdrop on people. I've heard that, Jim. And you know what? You couldn't bribe an FBI agent if you paid them $100,000 a year. That's for sure, Jimmy. And uh, you know what? If, that, if those fucking FBI agents do not come here and take this very expensive <laughs> wiretap out of my car, they will see me do it and then crush it with the heel of my cowboy boot. <laughs> Jesus. And then they're waiting. And after 30 seconds, Stevie said, hey, look at those two guys getting out of that van. And they walked up. They came into the car. They, were, they retrieved the, the uh, wiretap device. And then Whitey smiled
0: and drove away. You, you got to admire that kind of chutzpah, that kind of stuff, right? Absolutely. Yeah. He
1: was uh, kind of a master at it.
0: Indeed.
2: Do you get a lot of like, um, I know we're in COVID, but do you get a lot of invitations for like dinner parties? I would invite you because <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. I want to hang around with you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um I mean, Not people who don't know me, but you know, I'm occasionally asked to speak before like a, uh, a political group or a community group or something like It'd that. it would
2: be so fun at a party.
1: Yeah. yeah. Is there a book in your future, do you think, Jay? I was
2: wondering the same thing.
1: Well, um, it was my last uh, meeting with Jim. Um, he told me, he said, you know, Jay, I thought they'd, they'd appoint me a dump truck, a lawyer who would simply convince me I, I can only plead guilty and at, fall on the mercy of the court. And he said, you and my co-counsel, Hank Brennan really fought for me very, very hard. And I just wanna tell you how grateful I am. Mm. I can't give you any gift, but I'm gonna tell you this. I release you forever from the attorney-client privilege Mm. so that you can say anything to anyone in any medium about anything we've talked about. Wow! And that was, I think, his gift to me to say, why don't you write a book?
0: I haven't had, had this many to... wows in one interview did, ever.
2: Did huh? you think he was intuitively bright? Oh, he had he, to be. He was very, very bright. Well, his brother's a brain. Yes, Billy. he is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's. So anyway, this has been delightful. Thank you so much, Jay. Or,
0: I can't. I can't tell you how much fun it's working with Diane uh, for several months now. But uh, this was really We're coming up on a year. Coming up on a year. Yeah. this was really a highlight, Jay. Oh.
2: Jay, thank just you so much.
0: don't take your glasses off again. You'll scare me. To, <laughs> looking just I know, like too
2: bad we didn't the, late have the visual. James here. Bulger.
0: My oh, okay. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> I know it. Thank so, you so much.
2: Thank you so much. Oh, he's
0: taking oh, off his glasses. And he's Look holding
2: out. up a picture of James Whitey Bulger.
0: That That's is too, too much. Can I too take a picture of that? Take a picture of that.
2: Absolutely.
0: We're wrapping up the podcast, but we're doing a little... Uh, Show and tell, and uh, maybe we'll make this a Oh, actually,
2: have the same. That's unbelievable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that. That's incredible. That's incredible. Jay, thank you so much. Jordan, Diane, this was really a pleasure. It's delightful. It's been it. too
2: long, Jay. Yes, it has. Have great. a great right. rest of your day.
1: You bet. Thank you for asking me.
2: This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice.
0: Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey true stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed.